Well, that's a great welcome. I can't hardly wait to hear what I got to say. First, I want to thank the committee, Sam and Kevin and everybody who made it possible. Let's give them a round of applause for giving us some place to be. And Tommy. Everybody that worked hard, so we had somewhere to be today. You know, I'm pretty sure what I'm going to say up here this afternoon. But I'm not pretty sure what you're going to hear. And there's a story I like to tell, and it's a, it's a story about a state trooper. And that state trooper, he's just sitting on the side of the road waiting for somebody to go by and do something wrong, because that's what state troopers do. And sure enough, on that day, a boy come driving by in a pickup truck. And the back of that trick up, pickup truck was full of penguins. So he pulled them over. He knew something was wrong with that. He said, son, where are you going with all those penguins in the back of that pickup truck? He said, well, officer, we're not going anywhere. We're just out for a ride. He said, what's wrong with you? You can't take penguins for a ride. You take those penguins to the zoo. He said, yes, sir, I will. Next day, that trooper's in the same spot. Here comes that boy one more time. Back of that truck, still full of penguins. But on that day, all those penguins are wearing sunglasses. <laughs> and he pulls them over again. He said, boy, I thought I told you to take those penguins to the zoo. He said, well, yes, sir, I did. Today we're going to the beach. <laughs> We all kind of see and hear things differently, don't we? Oh, we can be listening to the same person, looking at the same thing, and we're going to hear something different, and we're going to see something different, aren't we? Let me give you an example. There's a room. In the middle of the room, there's a table. Sitting in the middle of the table is a $100 bill. Standing around that table is the perfect man, the perfect woman, Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny. And the lights went out. Now, when those lights went back on, that $100 bill was gone. Now, who do you think took it? We all know it had to be the perfect woman because those other three things don't exist, do they? <laughs> My name's Tim Towsley. I'm an alcoholic. I did not want to be an alcoholic. My daddy was an alcoholic. He's a member of this fellowship. He got sober in 1946. He passed away in 1980. He had 10 years of continuous sobriety put together at that time in his life. And what that did for me early in my life, it gave me an opportunity to see what an alcoholic was all about. See what alcoholism was all about. And to see what Alcoholics Anonymous was all about. I came from a family where I had six stepfathers. I had 13 stepmothers. I went to over 20 schools. I never got out of the eighth grade. I've been married three times and divorced twice. I left home when I was 14 years old. I've had an opportunity in my life to spend time in boys' homes and detention homes, city jails and county jails, workhouses, psych wards, treatment centers, and penitentiaries. I spent 12 years of my adult life either on parole, probation, or locked behind some kind of door somewhere. And do you know not one of those things I just mentioned are the reasons I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous? Those were merely the situations that my disease of alcoholism created in my life. But on June 23rd, 
1982, I woke up at the bottom. That's the bottom they talk about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's when you know a loneliness such as few men know. It's when you're at that jumping off place. You're wishing for the end. You can no longer imagine life with or life without alcohol. And that's the bottom. Now, that's not a high bottom. But it's not a low bottom either, see? It's my bottom. That is the only bottom I ever need to concern myself with in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't ever want to be in a position in my sobriety where I can sit in a room of alcoholics, I can listen to a speaker speak, and I can start thinking things like, you know, maybe I wasn't that bad, huh? Or maybe I was worse. Because as soon as I can sit out there and I can make myself believe I'm different in any way from anybody else that's sitting in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, if I can make myself believe I'm unique in any way, from anybody else in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, then I've got reservations. And there was an old timer in Bree, Ohio, where I got sober, he used to tell me all the time, he said, Tim, you know if you've got reservations, son, you must be going somewhere, huh? <laughs> and I don't want to go anywhere today. I like it here. I had my first drink at 13. I got sick, I blacked out, I passed out. I woke up in the backyard of a lady's house in Rocky River, Ohio. I had my last drink at 30. And I got sick, and I passed out, and I blacked out. <laughs> I woke up at home. And then really, 17 years of use and abuse, the only real difference was where I woke up the next day. But I do know one thing for sure today. I know that God wants me in Alcoholics Anonymous. That lady found me in her backyard. She took me into her house. She cleaned me up. She laid me down. She found out who I was. She called my mom and let my mama know I was okay. Seventeen years later, I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was sober about two weeks, and I went to a meeting. And that woman was speaking at that meeting. My very first drunk, I found myself in the arms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she did for me that night all she knew how to do. The night she found me in her backyard, she was sober about 60 days. And all they told her to do at her home group was help a drunk. And they didn't tell her, only help the old drunks or the young drunks, the black drunks or the white drunks, the male drunks or the female drunks. They told her to help a drunk. Period. And that's what she did that night. I still see that woman at meetings today. She's over 80 years old and over 40 years sober. And she's still helping drunks. Now, there's two things I ran from most of my life. I don't run from them anymore, but I still don't like them. I have a lot of them in my life today. I never wanted a lot of them. Never wanted any of them, but I do have them today. But I don't run from them. I deal with them. And those two things are responsibility and authority. I don't like being responsible. There's a lot of responsibility involved with being responsible, you know. <laughs> and I certainly don't like people telling me I'm supposed to be responsible. It seemed like at 13 or 14 years old, everybody had an idea about Tim's life, how he was supposed to act, how long his hair should be, how tight his jeans should be, how high the heels on his boots should be. No one asked me. I'm at a family gathering one day. I'm just listening to people talk, and I heard somebody say this. They said, my daddy, my real father, was in New Orleans, and he was sober. And see, then I figured it out. I knew what my problem was. It wasn't what I was doing or who I was doing it with. My problem was I didn't have my real father in my life. 
if I could get my real father in my life, everything would be okay. I left home the next day with that information. I got to New Orleans. I contacted Alcoholics Anonymous. They contacted my daddy, and they put us together. And all of a sudden, I had a father, and he had a son. And we tried to be those two things, but neither one of us ever been either of those two things before. We did the best we could. We just didn't know what we were doing. And after about 30 days, I found something out. You see, my daddy started drinking again. And I can remember coming home at 13 and 14 years old, falling into my mother's living room and having her scream at me, saying, son, don't drink. Please don't drink. You'll get what your father has. But I never knew what she was trying to keep me from getting until I was in New Orleans and I watched him drink. I watched him go into the DTs. I watched the people from Alcoholics Anonymous come into our little house, take him away and put him in Bridge House in New Orleans. And I made a decision on that day. I'm not going to be an alcoholic. I'm not going to end up like my daddy ended up. And I didn't have another drink for the next four years. I really didn't do much anything for the next four years. I just hitchhiked all around this country. If I woke up in Los Angeles and I didn't like it there, I'd go to Miami. Miami didn't please me, I'd go to Denver. I just went wherever it was I thought I wanted to be. Because all of a sudden, there I was. I'm in a city in New Orleans. I'm 14 years old. I've got no responsibility. I've got no authority. I've got the rest of my life to do whatever it is I think I want to do. And it's 1966. And I guess I was a hippie. At least that's what folks called me. Unless maybe I was like in northern Alabama or west Texas. There was another word in front of hippie they always used. Sometimes too. But, but I had four good years. My expectations were met. If I had a pack of cigarettes, a sleeping bag, and something to eat on that day, it was a good day. And a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me this. That my expectations are inversely proportional to my serenity level. And I don't know about you, but I know a little bit about me today. I can tell you this about me. Do you know if I get exactly, I mean exactly, what I think I'm supposed to have? Exactly when I think I'm supposed to have it? You know, I'm a pretty happy guy. But as soon as I don't get what I want when I think I'm supposed to have it, my expectations are met and my serenity level goes down. I'm outside Salt Lake City. Me and a buddy of mine are hitchhiking back east. We're coming out of Berkeley and we got dropped off outside Salt Lake City. To this day, I don't know where I was. This was an off-ramp up in the mountains in the middle of Utah in the middle of nowhere. It had no convenience stores, no gas stations, no houses, no nothing. It was just a road that went farther up into the mountains in the middle of nowhere. And that's where we got dropped off that night. We woke up in the morning and the mountains about froze to death. It's really cold up there in the morning. So we figured we better start moving or we're going to freeze to death. We walked down to the bottom of the on-ramp, 7 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of Utah, in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of nowhere. Sitting there is a six-pack of Olympia beer. I know God wants me in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I drank three beers. He drank three beers. I looked at him. I said, you know, if I ever get back to Cleveland alive, I'm settling down. I'm going to marry the first girl I see. You had to have a girl. You had to have a wife. That's all part of the American dream, right? Because all of a sudden, I want some stuff. I want some of the American dream. I want the stuff from the billboards. You know the billboards that tell us if we drive this kind of car, we're okay? If we wear these kind of clothes, we're okay. And if we live in that kind of neighborhood, then we're okay. And I want some of the okay from the billboards all of a sudden. Because I know if I get the stuff, you'll see me with it. You'll know because you read the billboards too that the only reason I have it is because I'm okay. And you'll have to tell me I'm okay because I can't tell myself. I got back to Cleveland. My stepfather wasn't home, so I was allowed in the house. I took a shower. I changed my clothes. I borrowed my mother's car. I drove to the corner to get a pack of cigarettes, picked a young lady up hitchhiking, and we got married. (laughs) (coughs) We didn't get married that day. We might have. But in the state of Ohio, the male had to be 21 or have parental consent, and the female had to be 18 or have parental consent. When I married my first wife, I was 18 and she was 15. This was not a marriage that was made in heaven. We didn't know anything about being married. We didn't know anything about being in love. I can't tell you to this day if I loved her. I can tell you this. I live in my brother's van in the driveway of my parents' home because I haven't been allowed in their house since I'm 14 years old. She lives wherever she can because there's stuff going on in her house she doesn't want to go back to. And that brought us together, see? And we weren't alone anymore. And that was enough. Just not to be alone anymore was enough. And it was a simple marriage. I got up in the morning, I got drunk. She got up in the morning, she got drunk. Then we'd beat each other up. (laughs) And we did that. One day at a time. (laughs) For about seven years. But I had seven years, I was away a lot. I travel a lot. I travel a lot today. I travel a lot then. I just travel a lot. It was just different back then where I was traveling. It was funny. I'd walk into a room kind of like this, big room. There'd be a guy sitting up front. He'd have a long black coat on. And every time he did this, I went somewhere. <laughs> I was just always in trouble. I had a bad attitude. I, it seemed like I only did two things for 12 years. I got ready to go to jail, and then I got ready to come home from being in jail. <coughs> I'm a child of the 60s. I had a terrible attitude. Y'all remember your report cards? Teacher would give you your report card. She'd snitch on you on the back of it. You'd have to go home and show your mom. I got my report card home from third grade. You know what it says? It says bad attitude. It says Timothy does not play well with others, it says. <laughs> I'm eight years old. I haven't had a drink yet, but they know I got a problem. I was just always in trouble. I wasn't a violent criminal. I was a stupid criminal. I got arrested for stupid stuff. I got arrested for stuff like verbal abuse. Of a police officer. (laughs) That was in a little city called Parma, Ohio. I got arrested for obscene finger language to a police officer. (laughs) 
And that was in Parham, Ohio. And if y'all want to know nothing about Parham, Ohio, I'm going to tell you this. They got no sense of humor in Parham, Ohio. I was at a meeting one night. I was about two years sober. And I don't know about you. Two years sober, I was pretty close to the smartest person in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and when I got to a meeting, I let you know just how much I knew about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Too. There's still a, long, a lot of long-timers left in Cleveland that remind me of that every now and again. <laughs> but I was at a meeting one night. You know how you go to a meeting? You hear somebody talk. You know you've heard that person say that same thing 50 times, right? All of a sudden, it makes sense. There was an old-timer talking. His name was Vic. He was just a friend. He was just a great guy. Vic's passed away. And I loved Vic. He was one of them guys, and everybody has one. When you got to the meeting, if you saw Vic in the room, you knew it was going to be okay. Huh? He didn't have to talk to you. He didn't have to know you were there. You just knew if Vic was in the room that you were better off being there. And Vic stood up here that night and he said this. He said, I've been arrested 63 times. I wasn't a good criminal. I picked right up on that. I know I've been charged with 63 crimes. I wasn't a good criminal. People that did what I did and got caught as often as I got caught weren't too good at what they were doing. I guess the only thing I was really good at was getting caught. That verbal abuse case of a police officer, I learned something in that case, too. See, I decided to represent myself in that case. What's so funny? I knew I saw enough Perry Mason judge for the defense. You know, I can do this. I went to court. I called witnesses. I cross-examined witnesses. I gave my final arguments to the judge. Y'all know what I found out, right? I'm not a very good attorney either, you know. 1975, I stood in front of a judge in that old lakeside courthouse in downtown Cleveland. And he sentenced me to 20 to 40 years in the penitentiary. And I took a big sigh of relief on that day. I felt pretty good on that day. Now, I can hear my wife and my mother in the back of the courtroom. They're crying. They don't think I should go away, and they certainly don't want me to go for that long. But they don't know what I know. On that day, I know something. I know they can't send me anywhere that's going to hurt me as much as I've already hurt me. And I knew it on that day. That judge had no idea that there was no way on earth for him to punish me as much as I've already punished myself. And on that day, I knew it. I was ready to go anywhere where I thought I might have a better chance against myself. 1976, the laws in Ohio changed. My sentence went from a 20 to 40 to a 1 to 10, and three years later, they sent me home. When I got home, my stuff was gone. All the stuff I had to have to fit into your world was gone. My wife was gone. My car was gone. My clothes were gone. My jewelry was gone. Everything was gone. And I didn't do anything for the next 35 or 40 days but drink. 
I crawled into a bottle of alcohol. I got as drunk as I could, passed out as I could, blacked out as I could, as many times that day as I needed to. I crawled into a bottle of alcohol. Not once in my life have I ever crawled into a bottle of alcohol to hide from you. I have never crawled into a bottle of alcohol to hide from them. I got as drunk as I could, passed out as I could, blacked out as I could, as many times that day as I needed to. I crawled in that bottle to hide from me. You see, I knew what I was. I was an ex-con. I was an ex-husband. I was an ex-brother. And I was an ex-son. I failed at everything I ever tried to do in my life. But if I was drunk enough, I didn't have to look. Finally, a friend of mine came over. and He wasn't going to let me sit in there anymore. Almost physically, he takes me out of my house. He said, I'm not going to let you sit in this chair and drink yourself to death. You're out of prison. It's time to start living. <coughs> he took me down to a little place in Cleveland we call the Flats. Flats used to be a really nice place to go get drunk. This is a long time ago. This is before they ruined the Flats. They yuppied it all up, you know. You know, you went to the Flats to get drunk. You drank Jim Beam bourbon and Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, and you got drunk. You rode your motorcycle down there. You got drunk. You didn't go down there on your boat. You didn't go down to the flats to have dinner. You certainly didn't go to the flats to drink something that came from something called the microbrewery, for Christ's sake. <laughs> we walked into a little bar called the Pirate's Cove. My cousin's band was playing that night. They're playing a Marshall Tucker song. I'm drinking past Blue Ribbon beer. I'm about half in the bag, and this pretty little girl walked past me. She smiled at me. You know, I smiled right back at her. And that was her. That was my future ex-wife. <laughs> Who shall heretofore be known as the plaintiff? <laughs> one of my new goals in life today. Just once in my life, I'd like to be the plaintiff. Huh? <laughs> All I ever get to be is a defendant. I never get to be the plaintiff. Let me tell you about my second wife, because she had some stuff with her when she came. I think I had some of this stuff. I just don't know where it was. She had things with her like honesty. She had unselfishness. She had purity. And she had love. These are the things she brought with her. And four years later, she left. And she only had one thing left to take with her. And that was the disease of alcoholism. I'm not the only one I hurt when I pick up a drink. And I know that today. I touch a lot of lives. I tried for a couple of years. I had a decent job. I was moving up in the company. I had a parole officer. didn't bother me too much. I never called in sick. I was never late. I went to work every day. I did the right thing thing for two years. You listening to me? Two years I worked. <laughs> After two years, I'm sitting in my living room one night drunk, and I'm surveying my dynasty. Huh? You know, after two years, I don't have a house on the lake. I don't have a Porsche in the driveway. I'm not going running around with the right people. I don't belong to the right clubs. After two years. 
So I came, made a decision that night, and I came to a conclusion that those things were just for other people. And no matter what I did, I'm one of the people that's not supposed to have those things. And I got up the next morning, called my boss, and quit my job. My wife lasted for a couple more years, and then she had to go. And the end of my drinking's not too exciting. I got up, I got drunk. If I got up again that day, I got drunk again that day. That's just what I did. This is my life at 30 years old. Now, do you know those family gatherings we have? Might be Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, whatever the date is. We're going to go somewhere. We'll sit at a table with our families. We'll hold hands and we'll say grace. Then we'll share a meal with each other. When the meal is over, we'll sit around and we'll share what's going on in each other's lives. This is the way it works at my house. I pull into my parents' driveway and I blow the horn. When they hear the horn inside, my little brother comes out of the back door. He has a paper plate in his hand and it's wrapped in tin foil. And I'm allowed to eat my holiday meal in my car off a paper plate with a plastic knife and a plastic fork. I can't hold their hands and say grace. I can't share a meal with them, and they certainly don't want me to share anything with them that's going on in my life then. But I don't want you to think they stopped loving me. Not even this much did their love diminish for me at that time in my life. They simply realized that every time they reached down and they stopped me from hitting my bottom, every time they allowed me not to be responsible for my own actions, they were killing me. You see, my parents loved me so much, they let me go. I don't have any children today, so I can only imagine how much love that must take. June 23, 1982, I woke up at that bottom I told you about. And I didn't know what to do. And when I didn't know what to do in my life, I always did the same thing. I made a phone call. And I don't know if I made that phone call a hundred times or a thousand times. It was always the same phone call. It was, Mom, help. My mom came. I couldn't go to her, but she'd always come to me. She walked into my house. I'm kneeling on the living room floor. I'm crying uncontrollably. I'm shaking apart. I have hepatitis, and I weigh 112 pounds. And the first words out of my mother's mouth were, I'll kill her for doing this to you. Alcoholism. This is a family disease. Blaming others is a big part of this disease. We made some phone calls. I found myself in an emergency room. I got a doctor playing with my liver. He said, he said son, you got an alcohol problem. I said, oh, no, sir, not me. <laughs> I'm arguing back and forth because I'm ready to be anything he wants me to be. I just don't want to be an alcoholic. He says, I don't care what you want to be, don't want to be. If you don't quit drinking, you're going to die. And I heard him say that. He sent me to the east side of Cleveland where I spent the next ten days in a psych ward. Three in restraints. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life had become unmanageable. That sounded like step one a little bit, didn't it? A little bit like step one. I got a psychiatrist in my psych ward. I got the happiest psychiatrist on earth in my psych ward. He comes to see me every morning about 7 o'clock, and I'm just happy. 
Tim, how you doing? Good to see you. Isn't it a marvelous day, huh? I don't know about the rest of y'all. Seven o'clock in the morning? In a psych ward? On the east side of Cleveland? Tied to the bed? I'm not real spiritual. I told him what I thought. And then he just did what psychiatrists do. You know what they all do. They're writing their charts. They nod their heads. That's what they do. And they go away. Pretty soon they make you take that test. Did you ever take that test? I'd like to have a nickel for every time I took the test. Every time they sent me somewhere, they made me take the test. The MMPI test. It's got 600 questions on it. There's only one question on that test I can't answer. My favorite question on the whole MMPI test. It says, do you urinate more than most people? (laughs) I don't know. On the third day, that psychiatrist came into my room and he undid the straps. He put his chart in a windowsill, and I don't ever want to forget this. He sat on my bed and he said, Tim, I can't make your wife come home. I don't have a job to give you. I'm not going to make a house payment for you. But if you never want to take another drink as long as you live, I can tell you how to do that one day at a time. This psychiatrist was a recovering member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that God wants me here. He shared a little bit of his story with me. Then I shared a little bit of my story with him. And all of a sudden, it was no longer I'm powerless over alcohol that my life had become unmanageable. All of a sudden, it became we. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And that's step one. And I know without the we, I don't have a chance, man. Seven days later, he sent me home. He gave me my prescription. Most valuable thing anybody's ever given me in my whole life. He gave me a meeting schedule to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, when you get home, I want you to do two things. You go to a meeting. When you get to that meeting, you get a sponsor. And I got home, and I didn't know what to do. And I told you all what I do when I don't know what to do. I called my mama. I said, Ma, i got to go to AA meeting. She said, well, I'll come get you. My mom knows all about Alcoholics Anonymous. She went to meetings with my daddy in the 40s and the 50s. It's been a big book in my house as long as I can remember. And she took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was July 4th, and it was 1982. She dropped me on your doorstep, and she left me with a little advice. I want to share that with you. She said, I'm not coming back to get you. You go to the front table, you tell the people at the front table you're new. You don't have a car, you don't have a driver's license, you need a ride home. And you stay away from the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) And I paid attention to just about half (laughs) of my mama's advice. But I got a sponsor that night, he gave me stuff to do that night. 
His wife was a chairperson. She handed me the traditions, asked me to read, and I backed up. I said, I don't know, honey. You know, they just took the straps off me. You might want to find someone else to do that. <laughs> and he just looked at me. You know how they look at you. He said, there's your first lesson in Alcoholics Anonymous, Tim. You never say no to Alcoholics Anonymous. No matter what the request is, the answer is yes. That's all you're ever going to need to know about that. He gave me simple things to do. He said, if you sat in a chair, put it away. If you got a coffee cup, throw it away. If you used an ashtray, this is back when Alcoholics Anonymous was civilized. <laughs> you empty it. He said, I want you to read one page of the big book every day. Don't turn the page until tomorrow. Read that page as many times that day as you want to or think you need to. Do not turn the page until tomorrow. And maybe, just maybe, in 164 days, you might know something about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, if you're not praying, this is how you're going to start. You're going to use three words your mother taught you when you were a little boy. You're going to get up in the morning and you're going to kneel down. And you'll say, please. You get up, go about your day, and at the end of that day, you kneel back down. And you'll say, thank you. Please and thank you. You know, my mother taught me those words when I was a little boy. Do you know what she called them? The magic words. What's the magic word? What's the magic word, Timmy? No matter what I wanted. And then once I got it, again, it was what's the magic word. I had no idea how much magic those words, those words held until I came here to you and you showed me how to use them. Then he asked me that question. I'm a firm believer in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have newcomers come in here. And one of the first things we're going to tell them is there's no such thing as a stupid question. Then we're going to ask them two or three stupid questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just an opinion. And I don't know if your sponsor asked you. My sponsor asked me. He said, do you want what I have? So I want what you have. What do you got? <laughs> do I want what you have? My sponsor had a, had a brand new Tornado. He wore a Rolex watch. He had the prettiest stewardess wife who had the prettiest green eyes I ever saw. Do I want what you have? <laughs> what page is that on? Huh? That's what... I had no idea what he was trying to give me. Because when I got here, I did not want what you had. I only knew one thing for sure when I got here. And that's that I didn't want what I had. And God loved me so much, he put people just like you in my path to show me another way. Do you know when I knew I had it? The first time I knew I had what you wanted me to have? was the first time I gave it away. That's when I knew. All you wanted from me were those promises to come true. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity left. That's all you wanted from me. I came to believe by watching you my life would change. If I did what you did and that's what I did. I knelt down with my sponsor and I said a third step prayer. I wasn't crazy about the third step prayer, or the third step for that matter. I don't know what you all thought first time you read it. 
First time I saw it, you know, it went through my mind. What if it works? (laughs) Then what? So me and my sponsor, we're going around and around about this. And... And I'm looking for I said, well, if I do this, what's going to happen? He said, we don't know. I said, well, that's not good enough for me. <laughs> we don't know. It's not good enough. So he gave me something so I could understand the third step. And if you have one, you can understand it, too. He gave me a penny. I always have a penny with me. This is a special penny. This penny's from 1918. That's the year my mother was born. And if you look at the back of the penny, you're going to see the Lincoln Memorial. And it'll say one cent. But do you know what happens as soon as you turn it over? On the front of the penny, it says, In God we trust. That's the third step. That step's not about God's will. It's about my will. And am I willing to trust God with it today? I can tell you, yes, I am. And once I can do that, there's another word on the front of that penny. And that word's liberty. The freedom I can have just by trusting God one day at a time. I started on the fourth step, but y'all know that's not one you want to rush right into, right? No, no, really. No, you got to read all them books, right? We ain't got nothing in Alcoholics Anonymous, buddy. We got books. We got blue books. We got blue and blue books. We got little blue books, little red books, little green books, little black books. We got lists, we got guides, hell, you know, we even got experts in Alcoholics Anonymous today. (laughs) And if you don't read all them books and talk to every old timer in the world, you're going to mess the fourth step up, aren't you? There's only one way to do the fourth step wrong. Don't do it. That's the only way you can do the fourth step wrong is don't do it. I read all those books. I talked to every old-timer in Cleveland. I'm sober 27 years. And I'm still not 100% sure what Mr. Jones's problem really is. I'm sitting at home one night. The phone rang. It's my sponsor. He said, how's that four-step coming? I said, it's coming right along. right along. Then he gave me something you shouldn't give your newcomer too much of. He gave me information. He said, it'll get done in God's time. You know, that's exactly what I was thinking, too, about that four-step. I said, yeah, I hung up the phone. About five minutes later, the phone rang. It's my sponsor. He said, how's that four-step coming, Tim? I got something now, right? I got information. I gave it right back to him. I said, it's going to get done in God's time. He said, that's a good thing, because God's time is tomorrow morning at 9 (laughs) o'clock. He's just always helping that way, you know? I did a fourth step and I did a fifth step. I wrote down what I did. I shared with another human being and my God why I did it. And then I had to become entirely ready to have that stuff go away. The big book, Hold the Directions to a New Way of Life. 
I got a pair of pink socks at home. I never wanted any pink socks. I have a pair of pink socks. No one ever bought me a pair of pink socks. I never bought any pink socks. I used to have a pair of white socks. <laughs> and a brand new red t-shirt. <laughs> and I don't like to wear anything till I wash it. So I got home my new red t-shirt. I threw it in the washer, started washing. I thought, I better get some other clothes to throw in there. I don't want to wash that all by itself. So I got the rest of the laundry, washed it all up, dried it all up. Y'all know what I got, right? Pink socks. So I'm folding my t-shirt with a mild resentment. And I noticed something. There's a little tag on the back of your t-shirt. I don't know if y'all ever noticed it before. It's got writing on it. Do you know what it says? It says, washing instructions. And underneath that it says, wash separately. I never took time to read the directions. If you never take time to read the directions laid down in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you can never hope to have what it promises you. But you know what happens if you read the directions and you don't follow them? You know what you get. Pink socks, man. (laughs) I became entirely ready. And I humbly asked God for help. Because I couldn't do it by myself. I needed help. We're all like TVs, aren't we? You got TVs at home? They're a little different now. They're kind of fancy and stuff now. But you know those buttons on the back of your TV? The ones you're not supposed to mess with? Y'all mess with them. And sooner or later, you're going to have to call on a power greater than yourself. The TV repairman. And he's going to come by the house and get back there, and he's going to adjust all those buttons again until he gets it right. But I don't know about you, but if you're like me, he's not halfway back to his van, and you're back there again thinking you can get it just a little bit better. My God sent me to the eighth step, and I'm going down my list because my sponsor's coming over, and we're going to talk about this. And I'm looking at this guy over here. Now, I did that to him. I don't dispute that. But you know, he did this to me. I scratched him off the list, man. That's a push. (laughs) Now, we're even. So I'm steady scratching people off the list, waiting for my sponsor to come over. By the time he gets there, there's no one on my list but my mama. He said, Tim, you don't get this. This is about forgiveness, this step. It's about you forgiving everybody that ever wronged you. And once you can do that, then and only then will you have the right to ask anybody else for any kind of forgiveness. I became ready. And I went out and I made direct amends to the people I've wronged. You know, before I was halfway through, those promises started coming true. I got that Porsche at home today. I keep it disguised as a Toyota. That's That's just so no one will steal it, you know. Maybe you'll see it someday. You'll come to Ohio or I'll come back and drive it. and, And you might see it and you might think, that's not a Porsche. That's a Toyota. But you've got to remember this. There's only one person today looking out of your eyes. That's the only person in the whole world that's ever going to be responsible for what you see. You can see good or you can see bad, but you're the only one looking out of your eyes. When I get home, I'm going to get inside my car. 
Alcoholics Anonymous is an inside job. I spent most of my life believing if I could make the outside look good enough, that the inside would feel better. And I came here and you showed me how to work from the inside out. And I get in my car. I don't see Toyota. I see Porsche. Carrera. It's black. Got a moonroof and a Bose CD system in it with a 12-disc changer. And I hit those power windows. And I drive to the job. You know the job I didn't used to have when I was drinking? It's where I see my friends. Those would be the friends I didn't used to have when I was drinking. I don't know who has your message, do you? Are you waiting for somebody with 60 or 70 years? Maybe today the messenger God sent for you isn't even going to get sober for 60 or 70 more minutes. I don't know who has your message. I know this today. That if somebody's talking and I can hear them, God wants me to listen. I got a message on the, on the first step about 16 years ago. I was invited to speak in Valparaiso, Indiana. And my wife couldn't come with me that weekend, so I took a new guy with me. And I didn't want to take my car, so I took my wife's car. I didn't think my car would make it. My wife had a Honda Civic back then. And you know, in a Honda Civic, what do you get in a Honda Civic? Three, four hundred miles to a gallon in a Honda Civic, right? <laughs> no, really, you drive a Honda Civic pretty much from now on. Never had to put gas in a Honda Civic. We're heading for Valparaiso, Indiana. We, we went underneath the sign and said my exit was about five exits away. And I looked down at the gas gauge and it said empty. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, empty like in a real car, empty. You know, but no, Honda Civic, empty, you've got to have 100 miles left, right? There's only 50 miles left in Indiana. I didn't give it another thought. Until we went underneath the sign and said my exit was two miles. As soon as I went underneath that sign, I ran out of gas. If you've got a Honda Civic and it says empty, they're dead serious about that. That's that's exactly what they mean. Now, I coasted for another mile and I pulled over to the side of the road. And there I was in the side of the road in Indiana, out of gas. Got a new guy sitting next to me. You know, I don't even want to turn a look at him. I just spent the better part of about four hours telling him all about responsibility and stuff like that. I had to do something, so I just turned and I looked. And he grinned. You know, you know how they are. They'll wait a long time for you to do something wrong just so they can point it out. And he looked up at me and he said, we're powerless, ain't we? <laughs> so, yeah, you bet we are. I said, what do you think we ought to do about it? He said, well, I think we better admit it. I could have sat there the rest of my life and gone, vroom, vroom, vroom. <laughs> If I never admit there's a problem, I'm never going to get anywhere. I don't know who has your message today. Are you listening? I take one word out of each of the last three steps. That's how I live my life today. Continue. Improve. 
and practice. Now, each one of those words is an action word. You have to do something if you want something. My book says half measures avail me nothing. It doesn't say half measures avail me half. It says nothing. And I don't know about you. I don't want any more nothing. (laughs) I've had more nothing in my life than I want. I want everything my God wants me to have. And I don't even know what that is. There's a difference in my life today. I want to share that with you. I go to the prisons and I talk to the guys in the penitentiaries. I used to do it quite a bit. And for a lot of reasons. I got sick and I couldn't do it. And then they changed the rules in Ohio. Now in Ohio, if you want to go into the penitentiaries, you've got to fill an application out. I never had to fill an application out to get into a penitentiary before. (laughs) I was always pre-approved when I got there. Twenty-some years ago, I'm at a penitentiary. I'm in the Allen Correctional Institute over there by Lima. And a guy came up to me after that. And he said, uh, can I call you? I said, yeah, sure, you can call me. I forgot. You want to call somebody from the penitentiary, you got to call Collect. (laughs) But I'll accept a Collect phone call in my life today. Let me tell you why. On April 10th, 1989... I went to a meeting. There was a young lady speaking at the meeting that night. And I don't know what your sponsor told you. My sponsor told me this quite a bit. He said, Tim, if you go to a meeting and you hear something you like, take it home. (laughs) And on October 16th, 1993, we got married. I married a girl in Alcoholics Anonymous. Her name's Mary. I married a very intelligent woman in Alcoholics Anonymous, a very educated woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, a lot of her friends didn't think she's so smart (laughs) when she said she'd marry me. My wife got got more letters after her name than I got in my name. She's got a B.A. She's got an M.A. She's got an M.A.C.T. She was A.B.D. Now she has a Ph.D. Then she got my personal favorite. That's a J-O-B. <laughs> One of my friends asked me once, they said, doesn't that intimidate you that your wife is so intelligent, your wife's so educated, doesn't that intimidate you? I had to stop and think about it for a minute because I never thought about it before. And I said, no. <laughs> no, it doesn't intimidate me. It makes me proud. I'm proud as hell of my wife's accomplishments. Because 21 years ago, she came through that door. And she didn't have any letters after her name. But because of a God of her understanding, the women in her home group, and a book called Alcoholics Anonymous that told her, once you come through that door, you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to do the work. She trusted God. She did the work. She believed her sponsor and she accomplished. I can't be intimidated by that. I can only be proud. I'm just proud to be a member of something that can make that happen. huh? I'm so proud I got new license plates. I got those vanity plates. 
Don't you hate those things? I do. But I have some. Do you know what my license plates say? They say PhD, GED. <laughs> I got letters after my name, too. <laughs> we had an AA wedding. I started with the Serenity Prayer and it ended with the Lord's Prayer. There was a reading in between from the 12 and 12. I was reminded on that day of the chance I got to make a collect phone call in 1975 from that old reformatory in Mansfield. And they walked me up to the phone. They told me I could call anybody I wanted anywhere in the world. But I had a call collect. And I stood there and I dialed until I ran out of time. I couldn't find one person on this earth, not one, that would accept a collect phone call from me at that time in my life, not one. We invited 320 people to that wedding. Do you know how many came? About 350. Do you see the difference? The difference in my life from then to now. But there's a difference in me. About eight or nine years ago, I had to start taking care of my stepfather. He had Alzheimer's disease. And my mother couldn't take it. Just couldn't do it by herself anymore. And I had to become his caregiver. Alzheimer's is a terrible disease. And Al-Anon once told me it's a lot like what they see as they watch us deteriorate and they feel hopeless and the helplessness that they feel as they watch us go away and there's nothing they can do. And there weren't two people on earth that hated each other me than my, more than me and my stepfather. We just hated each other. But I had to become his character. And for about a year, we tried to do the best we could, my mother and I. And finally, we had to find another place for him. He was stealing the car. The police were bringing him home. He was taking the doors off the hinges in the middle of the night and escaping. He was... So we found a nice place in Sandusky, Ohio, the veterans' home. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. If you find yourself in that position and you're a vet, they really do a nice job out there. And he was out there for about a year, and that's what my weekends became, taking my mother out to Sandusky to visit my stepfather. After about a year, he passed away. That left me with an 83-year-old mother at home that I had to start taking care of. And Mom did pretty good for a long time. She had a couple of strokes, and she broke her hip a couple of times. But Mom didn't want to go into a home. And we had that talk. And I said, Mom, look, the first few years of my life, you changed my diaper. You fed me. You took care of me. If I have to do that for you the last few years of your life, I would be more than grateful to do that. And she looked at me and she said, as only a mother could say, she said, the first few years of your life. (laughs) The first 30 years of your life. I was in a position where mom didn't have to go. I had a woman that came over and took care of my mother during the day. And after work, I'd go over and I'd make her dinner and I'd get her in her pajamas and clean her up and get her ready for bed and put her to bed. And that's what I did afterward. On the weekends, I was there all weekend. And I made three meals for my mom and I just took care of her. 
And whatever she needed, walk the dog, write the checks, whatever the case may be, that was that's what I did. I took care of my mom. On, uh, you know, you know, you know what I like to do on weekends? I like to play golf. Now, I wasn't able to for a long time. I got sick. I had hepatitis C and went through interferon treatment for it, and I was just sure that was going to kill me. I lost 35 pounds of most of my hair and all of my energy, and just wasn't able to for a long time. But I still had friends at play. And one of them called me one morning and he said, you know, we got an opening in a foursome Sunday morning. Would you like to play with us? And I said, well, you know, I'd love to play. But I won't be able to I'll be with my mom Sunday morning. He said, do you have to be with your mom on Sunday morning? And I said, no, I don't. I don't have to be with my mom on Sunday morning. I get to be with my mom on Sunday morning. I get to be there. June 1st, 2005, I was kneeling next to my mother's bed. And I was holding her hand. And at 4.45 on that day, the angels came. They took her hand from mine. And they put it in God's. And I was able to do something on that day. Something you taught me. And I'll never be grateful enough. You taught me to let go and to let go. I want to share with you the most important thing my mother ever said to me. And it's only because of you. My home group night, I'd go over there and I'd get mom ready for bed, get everything handled and just hang out until it was time to go to my meeting. When it's time to go, I'd walk back into the bedroom. I'd give her a kiss on her forehead. Say, Mom, I'm going to the meeting. I love you. And what we'd like to hear is, I love you too, isn't it? If we tell somebody we love, we'd like to hear, I love you too. I went back one particular night. I kissed her on her forehead. I said, Mom, I'm going to my home group. I love you. She didn't say, I love you too. She said something much, much more important than that. She said, I know you do. I know you do. People should know that we love them long before we have to tell them. Is there somebody in your life every once in a while the thought goes through your mind? You know, I should give them a call. I should see how they're doing. Quit thinking about it and do it. Do you know how hard it is to make amends at the funeral home? I don't know why you think I took care of my mom. Maybe it was because I was such a great cook and she couldn't do it out my cooking. Nah, I wouldn't. Maybe it was because I was in prison for three years. She never missed a visit. I don't think that was it. Could have been my vast medical knowledge. <laughs> I have written some prescriptions in my lifetime, but <laughs> that wasn't it. Do you know why I think I took care of my mom? Because I've known a loneliness such as few men know. And loneliness is a disease of the elderly. We've got a lot of purposes in Alcoholics Anonymous, don't we? We've got a primary purpose. We've got a singleness of purpose. My favorite is our real purpose. And that is to become of maximum use to our God and to those about us. Not just here. Not just 
here. Everywhere. Remember, what you do today between the serenity prayer and the Lord's prayer isn't as important as what you do today between the Lord's prayer and the serenity prayer. Thank you very, very much for having me.